Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. And today I am joined again by the lovely and talented Blair Enns. Blair, welcome to the show. A lot of inflection in the again. It's like, uh, here's again. Blair again. <laughs> I am happy to be here, Jonathan. Thank you. Always great to talk to you. The Likewise. topic for today is productizing your services or productized services, however you want to call it. Um, we, I think we were chatting about this on Twitter uh, in a thread of a somebody else's tweet, but this... That's how I get on your podcast. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a wrong thing he just tweeted. Let's get him on the show and we'll talk about it. Well, that's where I try and Twitter is a good place to go to test your thinking on something because you can just blurt something out and everybody will tell you why you're wrong. And then you can see if you think they're correct in your error or if you're like, no, I'm right. <laughs> yeah, it's good for that. Um, so I've, this has been on my mind. We didn't talk about this before the show, but this has been on my mind a lot because I'm working on a book about uh, the subtitle being 35 ways to stop trading time for money. And so productized services fit into that heavily. Uh, there's some other things too, but productized services, I think on balance are the easiest way out for most of the people that I work with. It's, there's pros and cons to everything, but, um, uh, but anyway, so I've got a lot of examples of different kinds of productized services and I just wanted to kind of brainstorm with you, uh, what you are seeing in your space, because we were sort of serving different spaces, what you're seeing there, what's working, uh, what's common those sorts of things. And we can just sort of fill in gaps on both sides, just kind of have a regular conversation and hopefully the listener will enjoy sort of eavesdropping on it. Sounds good. Cool. All right. So, uh, what, what is a, let's start here. What is a productized service in your mind? Look at definition. Yeah. Good question. Um, a productized service is one. So I, I think of productized and customized services. Mm -hmm. A productized service is a service that is not customized. It is standard, off-the-shelf, templated, boilerplate, etc. And you do not bend it to the uniqueness of the business to which you are delivering it. Yeah. Now, that's you, you could push back on that a little bit and say, well, in any productized service, there might be some sort of customization. I don't know. That, that wouldn't be true, but... Um, yeah, no, I'll stand by that definition. You don't bend it to the audience. Right, right. Yeah, you just say, no, this isn't for you. I mean, there is a, there's a, I will, I, I'll speak to that point a little bit because I think it can cause confusion for people. A productized service will be delivered like a service. In other words, you're going to be having like a one-on-one -on -one interaction with a client. It's not like a, a, a video course that they just download and you don't uh, have any interaction with them. It's like a, it's a high touch delivery, uh, but it's, it's delivered in a very structured way that you don't deviate from. There will be differences, of course, because it's like personalized to them. So you're going to you're not going to be saying the exact same thing every time in every situation, because then you could just then it could be a product, then it could just be a video. But there's still going to be some creativity or improvisation within your framework. This, that's the way I, I see it mostly happening. And what I equate it to is like ordering an iPod. When you order an iPod, there's some selections that, or, or whatever you can, you can make some selections and then you can have like, do you want it engraved? And like the engraving is custom is customized, but it's not fundamentally changing the nature of the iPod. It's not even changing something important. In fact, it's just a part of the process that someone is allowed to customize it with an engraving. So it won't be the experience when delivering a productized service will be unique. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's unique each time because the client is unique each time. It's a different person. Uh, they're going to have a different conversation with you, but it's important to stick with your process and your scope and what your, what your promise is uh, each time. Otherwise you lose all the benefits of having a productized service in the first place. Does any of that, do you disagree with any of that? I'm not sure. What are the benefits of a productized service? What What are the benefits mm -hmm. to the uh, um, to the customer? To, to the customer, the benefits to the customer is that is that they're being they're being taken through something that's been road tested before. So they're not the guinea pig for some new 
process or service like it it will be fat it'll be delivered almost certainly it'll be delivered faster with higher quality than it would be if it was just a custom project that's like hey i'm good at mobile web development let's talk about me doing some mobile web development for you what do you need you know so in the deliver from the delivery standpoint once they've made the purchase i think uh, it's going to go much more quickly they're going to get much more bang for the buck than if you were just winging it as a smart person with a client who had a need uh, so it, yeah, go ahead. So those benefits of uh, delivered more quickly, more bang for the buck, those are efficiency-based benefits. Well, I see it more as like an opportunity cost benefit. So it's an efficiency benefit to the seller, but you're asking about the buyer. So the, to the buyer, it's like, wouldn't you want this outcome more quickly? Wouldn't you want this high-quality outcome more quickly than less quickly? So you know, quicker time to market, you could say, is like a, a very clear business benefit that any business person would desire. Usually when people would come to me for some kind of a custom engagement, they would be like, you know, we, if you could wave a magic wand and have it done in one day, we'd be even happier than if it took 18 months. So I think that it, that a productized service can deliver a result more quickly than if someone's just winging it, then, um, then that's good for that's going to be preferable to the client in every case. But I I don't think those are opposite ends of the spectrum. Like I think um, one of the things a client gets when they hire an expert, so a specialist, is the fact that they've worked in this space before. The fact that they can see the patterns more readily, mm -hmm. they can arrive at outcomes quickly. But that's not necessarily tied to productization. Uh, if, if you don't mind, I'll back up a bit and just paint the picture between the distinction between productized services and customized services a little bit more, because I think it was that something I said on Twitter that prompted you to invite me to have this conversation. And I, I probably said something like, it's a mistake to productize your services if you run a customized services firm. That would have definitely caused me to be on the show. Okay, yeah, flesh yeah, that out. So if, if we want to get to the heart of, heart of uh, um, my message is don't, it's don't productize your services. Now, there are some exceptions to that. And as I said to you before we pressed record, I recognize there are some holes in my thinking. So I'm, I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to the conversation where maybe we can kind of identify where those holes are and, and yeah. sort out um, uh, what's wrong or how to plug the gaps or, right. or have me rethink my ideas on this. Um, so you think of a customized services firm and a product. Uh, so let me start with the audience that I serve, creative firm. So a design firm, ad agency, and then all of the like hybrid consulting software engineering. Like our, <laughs> we, you said we serve different mar markets, but those markets are merging. Coalescing, right? yeah. Um, so let's take a design firm. Mm -hmm. uh, small number of clients. This is how a design firm or an ad agency should work. We have a small number of clients. Every client is unique. Every um, problem that they have that they bring to us is a unique opportunity for us to help them create value in a way that is unique to them. Therefore, every engagement is a blank slate. Uh, this is the way you think an agency should work? Yes, okay, also how a, cons a consultant should work. Okay. Every engagement is a blank slate of opportunity to create value that is specific to their client and very unique situation in the market that they serve. Mm -hmm. And we should be thinking creatively and expansively about how we uh, help this client create value. And mm -hmm. as you know, in a, in a value conversation, we're trying to uncover, well, what's we're, we're actually transcending the problem and solution as the client states it to us and we're thinking bigger and we're getting them to think bigger but well what is it you want to be true in the future and what's the value of this and what will you measure what's the value of this what would you be willing to pay for that so that's yeah. a value conversation for somebody yep. who's selling customized services yes and everything is you the engagement is unique and bespoke. Therefore, the proposal is unique and bespoke. Therefore, every price is a unique, every proposal is a unique creative act. Every pr price is a unique creative act. Yeah, totally agree on all of that, yes. So that was- Except for the should. I agree on all of that except for the should. 
okay okay this so is how agencies should right yeah yeah so this is how agencies should work this is how consultants should work i used to be mm -hmm. a consultant and i mm -hmm. didn't really work that way i had productized my services i'd quasi productized my services mm -hmm. the other end of the spectrum is a training company. So I used to be a consultant and I run a training company now. Mm -hmm. And a training company, you, so we talk about uh, in a customized services firm, value-based pricing is tied to, you're not, is it, is more art than science? I'd say it's 100% art, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a little bit of math <laughs> that not, I would put much. in the that I would put in the category of science, yeah, yeah. rightly or wrongly. Fair enough. Fair enough. But when it comes to a product company or a productized services company, it is more science than art. So they say there are ninety thousand data points that go into a into the price of an airline seat, as an example. Mm -hmm. And so when you have huge volume scale because you're selling products or productized services then it's more scientific. And how do you price based on value? You have to do these fairly sophisticated segmentation studies where you understand, well, we've got different, our audience of thousands or millions is made up of these groups, these types, these um, uh, personas. And mm -hmm. this group over here values these things and they're willing to pay this much for it. And this group over here values these things and they're willing to pay much less for it, et cetera. So you build your products and your prices based on this data mm -hmm. where you are making assumptions about you're grouping people together based on their similarities. And then you're creating a product and a price that is targeted towards the average of that segment. Totally coach business class and first class, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> that's a productized services business. And in a, when you sell a productized service, and I've sold both customized and productized, so I can attest to the veracity of this statement. When you're selling, when you're selling a customized service and you have learned to master the value conversation, you go into the conversation with the client not thinking about what you're going to sell to them. Hundred percent. It's agree. not about you. Totally. It's about the client, and you become really focused on the client in a way that productized salespeople cannot be. True. Because mm -hmm. you're letting go of solutions completely and you're focused on what do you want? What will we measure? What's the value of getting this? If I could help you do this, what would you be willing to pay? Sure. As soon as you start productizing your services, now you have these things, these products on the shelf behind you. <clears throat> yep. Client starts talking. You ask them, what do you want? They start talking and you being a pattern matching machine, being a subject matter expert, you see the patterns and you jump ahead and you think, oh, I know what you want. I, I've seen this problem before. And you immediately start matching your products to the client's solution. And you quit I, this. I have a hammer. You are yeah, now. Mm -hmm. This is no, and I do this now because we are a training company and we can sell you a seat in a workshop. We can sell you a seat in a boot camp. We can sell you private training. We can sell you private coaching. And that's about it. Yep. So client starts talking. I immediately start thinking which product is best for them. All of these things. If have, any. If any. Yeah. And all of these things have prices attached to them. And mm -hmm. a productized per salesperson has to think this way because they have to move quickly. Why do they have to move quickly? Because they have to pursue scale. Why do they have to pursue scale? Because one of the client things the client gets in giving up customization is they get a lower price. Mm -hmm. So your business model has to support higher scale, lower prices. This is a culturally different business than a customized services firm. And I said, there's some holes in my thinking here where there is a, there are places where customized services firm can have productize some products and we can talk about that a little bit but fundamentally these two businesses are at odds with each other so let's go back to the and the culture of the business one is an efficiency seeking organization one is an innovation seeking and value creation seeking organization and i've coined the term the inefficiency principle a blend of the words innovation and efficiency yeah. to talk about this problem that you can't be both so the inefficiency principle is the idea that innovation 
and efficiency are mutually opposable goals. Yes. And you cannot increase one without decreasing the other. Right. Because create, creativity is inherently inefficient. Yes. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't considered this before, you will push back on this idea. But it's it's got okay. some some holes in it, some nuance, but it's a pretty sound idea. Yeah. You're the first person I heard that from. And I remember it. I was like, wow, yes. Right. So I suppose, yeah, we, I, I don't, we could go into that, but that's not the point of today's talk. So I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I think this does boil down to the types of clients that we serve because I mostly serve soloists and, and well, let me back up for a second. You, I definitely agree that there are fundamentally different dynamics at play when you are selling, when you when you are trying to value price, custom projects, your sort of idealized firm model where they're doing creative, innovative work. They don't want to be repeating anything. They don't want to be selling anything. They just want to be learning about, you know, what is the transformation that we're trying to achieve here? The productized thing, you know, I have a hammer, everything is a nail, uh, is a different mindset. It is. And the, the uh, probably, and I do think, I mean, I know I have plenty of evidence that, um, and I imagine it's easier for soloists like a solo .NET developer, an expert at .NET or Rails or something like that. When you've just got a solo person who was a freelancer building themselves up by the hour, it is not difficult for them to sell a productized service that is a precursor to doing more of a, a value-based project that is unique and different and it doesn't have a defined scope. It has a defined outcome, but it's not, it, it's not hard for, it's, it's easier for them actually than going from, uh, from hourly billing straight to value price projects because they always underbid the projects. So it's extremely dangerous for a, for someone who's been billing by the hour, it's software developer that's billing by the hour that has been billing by the hour for five or 10 years to immediately switch to fixed price projects that they think they are value pricing, but they will surely not do a good job value pricing the first two or three times, which could easily put them out of business. So, so if they go into a value conversation and mine's less, less involved than yours, you've got like five different types of conversations or something. And, um, but mine is just like the why conversation. Go in and ask these questions. You need to have these answers by the time you're done. If you don't have those answers, you can't do a proposal. You will you will put yourself out of business. You'll regret it at the very least. So what you need to propose to them is it's like, look, you couldn't answer these really important questions. So what I propose is we do a discovery phase with, uh, I'll do a diagnostic. I will make, I'll do discovery. I'll make recommendations. I'll create a roadmap. And then we can de-risk this completely hazy project that you're going to spend six figures on for sure. It, let's make it, let's make sure it's in the six figures and not seven by coming up with some clarity around what exactly you're trying to achieve, how you will measure the success of that, how we'll measure pro progress along the way, making sure there's buy-in among the, the rest of the staff, the stakeholders, some of your customers, maybe even. So my, my folks don't see this, they don't see it as a productized service. It, it is a productized service, but they don't the see diagnostic. It. Yeah, they don't yeah, use absolutely. Yeah. It's it's the one where it's the one product every customized services firm should have. Okay, so we're on the same page there yeah. because they don't see it that way. They they see it as like, oh well, I I would have done this for free just to write a proposal before. Yeah, or they'll say I would have just done this as the first month of the hourly assignment. Yes. And then found out that the thing they want isn't feasible or something, or it's going to be, you know, 10 times more expensive than they thought. And then it was just a waste of money. Um, so that's, so that is one, I mean that, yeah. Okay. So we agree that that is a productized service that a custom, a custom firm could have. Uh, another one is just a straight up, like I'm an expert at a thing and you can pay a thousand dollars to pick my brain for an hour, which is just the, the most brain dead, simple productized yep. service that you could possibly I did that when out. I was a consultant, single issue, single session guidance, mm -hmm. one phone call, $1,000 exactly up, up to an hour, no preparation advance, exactly. no report afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah. If you want to report, take notes. <laughs> yeah. Alan Weiss. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, yeah. So those two things. So I think when we get into some of the specifics, I think what we're finding is that when we get into the specifics of like what kind of productized service are we talking about here, then there is some wiggle room and some nuance that uh, between the two stances. Yeah. I so think if I can, if I can recap what you've said, because I agree with both of those points. So the first one is a diagnostic is a formalized way of, of, of um, gathering information about the project so that you can scope it and price it and you sell a diagnostic. And in, in a lot of uh, customized services business, most of the engagements begin with a diagnostic because the client doesn't have the baseline data or they don't even have the, the goals. Usually it's, they don't have baseline data. They don't have an accurate understanding of where they are now. Sometimes they don't have an accurate picture of where they want to get to or the value of getting there. So you get paid to find out, to, to go get that. You get paid to go get the information that's required for you to be able to scope and price this project. And so you should have a formalized methodology for doing so. And as, as you refer to it the same way I do, it's a diagnostic. That should be formalized. I believe it should be written up in one page and it should be standardized. So when you propose to move forward on that first phase diagnostic, you can slide the piece of paper across the table or email it to the client and say, well, here's what it looks like. Uh, what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't standardize the price. I would not put a price on that document. I would, I would stick with the first rule of pricing creativity in my book, which I got from Ron Baker, which is price the client. Um, so have changed the price based on willingness to pay and your rudimentary assessment of the value of that to the client. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, and that's number one. And number two, just again, I, I feel like I'm interviewing you here, but yeah. number two, just the, you know, it's especially for a soloist, this like, okay, I have this thing. Like if you, you just sounds like you just need some advice. I have this thing. It's like, it's X dollars and it looks like this. And here that it's very, the lines are very clearly delineated. Mm -hmm. So again, my example was it's one hour. No, don't send me, you can send me stuff in advance, but I'm not going to read it until we, until the clock is ticking. We're both on the phone together. Mm-hmm. And uh, you pay in advance and et cetera. If you want another hour after that, and it can't be some low hourly rate, it's gotta be something like, you know, if you, if you look at, it really has to be tied to some rudimentary tie to value. It's gotta be way beyond any hourly rate you would charge as a coder. Yeah. You, well, you, you just price it such that you attract first class flyers. Yeah. And I can think of one other type of productized service that would make sense. Okay, hit me. I think of uh, a feeder product. So, like an MVP? No, like, so in my own business, back when I was a consultant, I had. Um, I had a webcast subscription for 10 years. I had webcast subscriptions. I was a customer. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that was a great. So, I published uh, blog posts on a regular basis. Um, that was free. So lots of people reading free blog posts. The next step is pay a little bit of money to go deeper into these topics in a webcast. And those people who are willing to part with some money are more valuable, more likely to pay you for the higher value stuff. So it's a great feeder product that, or kind of a next step. It's a, it's a first paying step mm -hmm. that lets you decide all these people who've been reading my blog post for years, um, and have never bought, and let's see if they'll buy something from me. And those that don't buy that feeder product from you, that is productized, scaled, delivered at scale, far less likely to hire you for your more, more valuable services. But I mm -hmm. think those three, beyond those three, I think productizing your services is a mistake. It's not one that you'll burn in hell for. You won't necessarily crush your business. You and I know somebody who has no employees and he will bill a million and a half dollars this year, no employees, and his all his services are productized. I have a friend who is another solo consultant who's one of the best value pricers I've ever met. He will bill just under that amount, no employees, 
works far less, has far fewer clients. So when you have, when you have the volume, you can get away with productization. You're leaving money on the table. This friend of mine is going to bill a million yes. and a half dollars. He knows he could change the way he prices and he could earn two, $3 million, but he's mm -hmm. been doing this for years. He doesn't need to earn two, $3 million, $4 million, $5 million. Right. And those value conversations there, that's a steep learning curve. Exactly. Yes. We are a hundred percent on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes it's just, and it's easier price. It's like, hey, here's the price. I'm in demand. Here's the price paid or leave it. Yeah. Rather than it. Well, I'll tell you what the price is once we, I figure out how much value I can create, what that's worth to you. <laughs> like that's like, if you have all these people lining up, willing to pay you money and you want to move quickly and you don't want to go deep into your client engagements. Now with your audience, I don't, <laughs> they have to go deep, but if you're the type of person where you don't really like people, <laughs> And you don't want to go too deep with them too long. Yeah, stay productized, yep. pursue volume. But that's the key. Like the key to productized services is volume. The trade-off has to be volume. You have to increase volume, not just a little bit, not just like four or five clients from a solopreneur to um, 10, 12. Like it's, it's dozens, it's hundreds, it's Sometimes it's thousands. Not for a solo. Yeah. Not, but, not, yeah. not for, yeah. But it would certainly be dozens, probably over a hundred yeah. where it starts to make sense. Right. And I just want to put a finer point on this. The reason, so the client gets a cheaper price because the uh, advice is not customized to them. It's not customized to them because you're, you're effectively segmenting your audience and you're aiming at the average of the segment. Now behind mm -hmm. me on my bookshelf is a book called the end of average. Um, there's no, hold on. There's another book. I'm looking for it. There's another book on averages and it might not be the end of average. Maybe it is. Um, Interesting studies in this book where they look at all these effectively segmentation studies. They start with like uh, designing a cockpit. So the U.S. Air Force designs a cockpit to the average pilot's dimensions. And they measure 20,000 pilots. And these planes keep crashing. And they can't figure out why. So they go look at the 20,000 people in the study and they ask themselves, how many of these pilots actually meet the average? The answer, zero. <laughs> They're all so bigger and smaller. When you are building a product and setting a price to an average, you're approximately correct for everybody. You're precisely correct for nobody. And in exchange for that not getting precisely correct advice is a lower price. For your lower price business model to work, you need scale. So I see, I really became aware of this in digital marketing firms. So there is a type of digital marketing firm out there that is a channel partner of a SaaS product. And I won't name names here. So they, okay. they are a digital marketing firm. They resell a SaaS product. Yep, I get it. And the SaaS product that they sell has done such a good job of supporting their agency partners. They've given them all of this like turnkey content to put out into the world. It's like these people are more like franchisees than they are like entrepreneurs. And they mm -hmm. take so many of their business decision-making cues from this SaaS company, including, and I'm sure the SaaS company didn't advocate this. They price like SaaS companies. So when you go to there, I can tell that they're a reseller of this product because I go to their website and they have these stand, they have these productized services pricing. So they're violating rule number one of pricing creativity, price the client. Mm -hmm. And what they don't understand. And when you look at, and I have a friend who's done consulting for dozens of these firms, they're, they are far less profitable than the average digital marketing firm. When you say and profitable, you literally mean profits or you mean I'm revenue? Lit no, profit. They are okay. far less profitable. They make far less money. Even the ones at the highest tier that are kind of famous within the spectrum, they don't make the money that th those below looking up at them uh, might, might covetously think. think. Right, right. <laughs> and the big problem is they are, they are taking their cue from a productized 
from a product company that has massive scale, they're pricing the same way, but none of them have the volume. They don't have the capacity. These businesses do not scale in the oh, same way. That's a good way. point, capacity. And that is too. the most common mistake that I see. It's in digital marketing firms in particular. Mm. Well, they it's, a, it's a business good. model mismatch. I mean, yes. one's a product company and one's a productized services company or a services company, really. And I mean, that's just a complete mismatch. But I, I run a, so I pivoted Win Without Pitching from a consulting company to a training company in 2013. Mm -hmm. And it was easier. It's not as messy as consulting, but there's the first few years until you hit scale. It's like yeah. you really need a certain amount of scale and you really need to build some infrastructure from this. And you really need to build an organization where that is more efficiency seeking than a pure innovation seeking customized services firm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it ends up boiling down to like, what kind of business do you want to build? Because you can do, you can, I mean, that one example, notwithstanding, you can make plenty of money as a productized service business. You can, I mean, is it as much money as you could make if you're just selling custom? Well, you could make more, but you need the scale. So, right. So, right. I guess the way if to you're think a about soloist, it. where's that? And you're struggling with three, four, five clients or whatever it is at any one time. Like, how do you flick the switch to get to 100, 200, 300, 400? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think in, in Teen Zoe's book, Subscribe, he calls it swallowing the fish, or he, he, he talks about it there, where you're going from these really, you're used to a high ticket, you're used to high revenue. So let, let me just talk about solos for a second in case it's different. I think it I think it is meaningfully different than having like 20 or 30 employees because you can focus on different things in a different way. But if you are used to making $200 an hour and billing out 30 or 40 hours a week, which is not totally uncommon, um, and then I say to somebody like, oh, you should start a mailing list and and send out email like five days a week. you know, And they're like, well, that'll take me two hours a day. That's 10 hours a week. I could have made you know, 200 times 10 hours and I'm losing 200 times 10 hours unless I do it on the weekend or, you know, queue them up on the weekend or something. So there's this like, this kind of like, you know, scrunched up puppy face, like how, why, why would I do that? Because they're so used to trading time for money. So for me, switching to, switching straight to value pricing is extremely dangerous if they're going to take on a really big project because they will get the conversation wrong. They will, they will underbid it. Guaranteed every time, 100%. So if they take on a huge project and the projects that they're getting leads for, they, they get like two leads a year, maybe four leads a year. They land one of them or two of them and they last for six to 12 months. So if they take on one of those and they value price it, they can really get in trouble, you know, because they're going to they're they're going to think they're value pricing it, but they're really doing time and materials in disguise. And they try and figure out the scope. They don't find out what the success criteria is. They don't find out what a project, uh, a progress metric is. And they, they, they think they're doing it, but they're actually way underbidding it. And then they hate it because they did a time materials bid. And those almost always go poorly, you know, it's like more than 50% of the time. So when I talk to someone and, but they see they're on the hamster wheel and it's like, geez, I'm like 50. I've been doing this for 20 years and my lifestyle is outstripping, you know, my lifestyle increases are outstripping my ability to raise my hourly rate, or I'm at a ceiling on what I can charge for my rate, or there are kids coming out of college that are undercutting me by 50% and they're actually really good. So, you know, it gets very scary. So like, what do I do? So for me, it's the big question to me is to them is, do you want to become a student of sales do you want to become good at sales because the value conversation is like a performance art and you're not going to get good at it without practice so they don't even have the scale of leads to practice it so what do you what do you do like they're not getting any leads so i'm like well uh let's start doing this paid diagnostic let's start doing these paid phone calls and see if you can get anybody in and both of those things the the, the phone call actually is a really good filter for paying clients like you described with the, the webcast subscription. If someone's going to pay you a grand to pick your brain about image compression uh, on, on like, I don't know, in a CDN, then they really have a problem. Like they've got something wrong. And if you're an expert at image compression or something, 
then they're going to be like, oh, wow, that was amazing. I'm so glad I talked to you. Listen, can we bring you in? It's like, okay, let's do a paid diagnostic. I'll figure out what's going on here. And then at that point, maybe they've got enough information to do a stuff. And I'm like, make this, make the phase as small as possible. Do a phase one that's as small as possible. Not, not what you're used to, which is trying to get as many hours as possible and blowing the scope up big because you're taking no risk. But make it really small and just try and execute on that so you get more and more chance to have these value conversations because you have to have practice to get better at it. Okay, so might start for the soapbox, but the point is, the point is, if they don't ever want to get better at sales, they hate the idea of it. They w- they wish it would just sell itself. I'm like, don't bother trying to get good at value pricing. You're never going to get there. So don't it's bother like, trying to get good at business. <laughs> that's a fair point, but they can still do really well if they if if they are like productize a very specific thing, and and then from there build out products underneath it products not productized services but products and those will scale like crazy so the question is like what kind of business model do you want to have do you want to be like super innovative like i mean i love your description a small number of unique clients are coming to you all the time with these problems and you're like massively inefficient creative that is never going to optimize the way that things work and you're going to have a genius idea in the shower or whatever and you don't need to because the delta between your cost and the price is so massive, you don't even, you could scope in orders of magnitude. Exactly. Totally agree. So, so where am I going with this? So, it, yeah, so it boils down to what kind of business do you want to have? If you're, especially for soloists, I'm like, I'm like, I, it's very difficult for me to even think beyond soloists. Like, I, I don't even, I, I've worked with a couple of small firms and it's relatively similar, but if you start getting up to like a hundred or 200 employees, I can't even relate. So it's like, so, so you're not seeing, this is why we're thinking about this differently. You're, you're not seeing, um, a, a productized services as, as a scaled offering sold to many, you're seeing yeah. it as a, as a safety or an interim step yes. to get away from, uh, hourly pricing to yeah. value-based pricing. Either way, I would I see it as an interim step either to get to value pricing or to get to product. Yeah, so I I I like to say that I I, I think that makes sense. I like to say that pricing is a prison cell in your own mind of your own making. And it, at first, when you learn value based pricing, you're going to think that you have dissolved the walls of the cell, but you haven't. You've just made them bigger. And I. I recall a conversation I had with um, uh, one of my earliest clients. I worked with this firm in 2003 and I was having drinks with them in 20, with two people, two senior people from that firm. They weren't owners. They'd since gone on to other things. And I was having drinks with them in 2019. So 16 years later. And we were reminiscing about when we worked together, we were all kids. (laughs) And, uh, they said to me, I remember you gave us the one piece of um, pricing advice. You said we were, we were, did this one service. I think it was branding and we were charging $15,000 for it. And you said, double, double the price every time you sell it. So we sold the next one at 30,000, the next one at 60, the next one at 120 and the next one at 240, the exact same service. And they're laughing, like just reliving this moment. And I'm thinking, yeah, that was bad advice. <laughs> Um, and then I realized it wasn't bad advice. It was good advice at the time, but there's, if you move to value-based pricing, it's like, you know what, that, that, that's an example of the, the size of the prison. Well, you're just doubling the size of the cell with every sale, but at some point there's a next level Mm -hmm. where the walls disappear and the price is really dependent on the value that you create. So they could have been, while they were earning multiples of what they had previously earned for that service, they could have been earning multiples more in some cases, maybe not, but in some cases they almost certainly could have been earning multiples more if they'd thought about it and priced it correctly. Mm -hmm. But that's messy. That's complex. That takes, you need to learn to master the value conversation, all of these things. So the idea of just saying, okay, put that service that you do Let's productize it. Let's say, okay, if you buy this, you get these things. And I used to do this when I was selling design and here's the price. And then just keep raising the price. And at some point you will develop the confidence 
that you will no longer put a price on it and you will have a conversation about, well, what's this worth to you? Mm. Couple of, okay, a couple of points there um, that are sort of nuances. Uh, one is that I wouldn't have a sales conversation if I was selling productized services. Like like right off the bat, I don't even do Just that. Buy it, buy it from my website. Buy it, don't buy it, don't care. Yeah, it's not you're not having a conversation. I might somebody might email me and say, uh, or emails to, like if if you if you're having a sales conversation, then all of a sudden you're starting to undermine the whole point of it, which is like, hey, it's a thousand dollars, it's ten thousand dollars, it's twenty five thousand dollars. It's fine if you don't want it, but this is here's the box, here's what it says on the front label, here are the ingredients from the back label, and here's the price. And if you're not cool with that, that is fine. You can instead of my $25,000 thing, you can buy my $2,500 thing if you want. Or you can talk to me about a custom project if you want. But I'm not having, conver- I wouldn't have be having conversations with people. A high touch sales for, for a productized service starts to make it ma- not make sense to me. Yeah, I think there's a semantics issue here. So let's just clarify. So the example I just gave of telling my client to double the price, that's really just fixed fee pricing yes, for, I agree. for mm-hmm. what I would consider a standard service and you would consider it quasi productized. And that's my beef with the mar- with the firms that I serve and the digital firms in particular. It's like they've, oh yeah, we do X, we have a price for X. And it's and it's and some people will go so far as to put those prices on their website. So they're quasi they're stuck in the mushy middle. They're quasi productized. Mm. Another thing you said that another thing you said that is definitely true I wanted to call out is that the main downside for me of productized services is that you are leaving money on the table. Like you almost surely if somebody is like cold buying a $20,000 thing off your website, almost surely you could have gotten more money from them. But and this is to the previous point, but you didn't have to do any sales, none. Yeah. Right. So if you hate doing sales and you don't want to get better at it and you don't want to hire someone to do it, you know, maybe you should just get a job. Okay, but you could you could just put it on your site at a price and be cool with leaving money on the table. And if that price is profitable enough, it should be extremely profitable. You should you should pump your fist and say yes every time you sell one like it should be priced at least that high. But it's not value pricing. it gets less profitable as the sales conversations drag on and on. Exactly. There shouldn't be, yeah. right. There shouldn't be that. And and uh, I would say every time you, similar to you, every time you sell one or two, you can increase the price because you're, you're attracting, somehow you're attracting somebody or groups of people who think this is a good deal. Uh, and you're probably going to make it more efficient over time. So your, your profits are going to increase on both ends, meaning that your costs are going to go down because you're going to get better at it and maybe even take out things that nobody cares about that were a lot of work and you can, you can increase the price at any time. So you can grow it. It's not going to be exponential, but it's faster than linear. So it's like, it, it can be pretty cool. And if you're using that as a bridge from services, either from, from hourly billing into value pricing services, and you're just focusing on the kinds of productized services that we talked about, like these feeder things like a one-off phone call or, you know, subscription to, you know, uh, uh, your, like your webcasts, something like that, or a roadmap, then, then that will feed naturally right into potentially into value projects that you could value price, or you could be like, I don't want to do this. It's too risky. I, I don't like taking those risks anymore. Um, I'm not attracting the kind, oh, this is an important point. I'm not attracting the kinds of clients who get that much value out of what I do. So if you're not attracting big, rich clients and you're only attracting mom and pops, value pricing cuts both ways. It doesn't automatically mean you can raise your prices. Yeah. It could be that there's no value there because people see you as an undifferentiated coder. So it might be like, "Mm, I don't know, dude, like, you know, what's different about you? What's special about you? Why are you? you know, you're not DHH. So like, why is somebody going to pay you a ton of money to solve this problem? So it, it's, so it required, I think value pricing really benefiting from doing value pricing. Not only do you have to become good at sales and the performance art of that whole thing, but you need to be attracting the kind of clients who are going to be getting massive value out of the, the stuff that you do. So there are going to be big companies probably that, um, that, have, have a large downstream benefit from your piece. 
So they're going to benefit. They have some kind of scale that you're going to amplify with your upstream strategy design, whatever piece that you're doing, they're going to get tons of benefit out of it. So it's worth a lot to them or you're, you're taking away a massive amount of risk, whatever it is. So it's going to be worth a lot to them and it doesn't cost you that much. So you can have those order to deliver. So you can have those order of magnitude, uh, prices where you, yeah, it's going to be sloppy and the scope is going to skitter all over the place, but that's fine because I'm getting paid $2 million for maybe a two month engagement. Yeah. As soon as you build a product for the lower end of the market, put it on your website, you're positioning your offering as serving the lower end of the market. You're right. You need, it needs to be a conscious decision to go down market. Yeah. So once, so I think if you are soloist billing by the hour and you're looking for a way out, Sometimes I've met a f- 10% maybe of the students I've worked with just naturals at it. They just have already been talking like this. They have high personal confidence. They see their, um, they see their, their uh, prospects as peers and not bosses and they can do it. And they're willing to walk. They have to also be willing to walk away from the deal. Yeah. So if there's any stench of desperation, but one of my favorite Blair quotes, if there's any stench of desperation or you need the gig or you feel like you are lower status than your buyer, oof, trouble. But maybe 10% of the people I work with feel high status. They really know what they're doing and they believe it. Um, and they're just like, yeah, and they'll walk away from the deal. Then maybe value pricing and they're going to scale their their profits up that way. But if they're not and they don't really want to, then it's like, well, let's talk about productizing and then going down to people you're more comfortable selling to and trying to build a really big base of the pyramid instead of living up at the very tippity top. Yeah. It's, um, it's deflating to me to hear that, like to imagine (laughs) 90% of the market that you or I serve can't do this and needs to go down market. Um, Oh, no, 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 no. 10% of the people I meet are naturals. Yeah. The, there's a, some percentage that can learn it, that does learn it. I, and I think, um, you know, the, the value conversation is so, it's so pivotal. Pivotal. I, I, I consider it to be the most valuable skill in all of business. I think I, when, you, I when you learn to do this, you, you shift your focus from what it is that you're selling to how do you create value. It just feels so different to the client. It changes the dynamics you get one or two victories under your belt and you see the possibility, you taste what this could be like, you are hooked. The average person is hooked, but you're right. It's, it's tacit knowledge. It has to be learned. You can't, the longest chapter in my book is on value-based pricing, master the value conversation, or sorry, is on the books on value-based pricing is on master (laughs) the value conversation. I spent the most time on that chapter. And at the end of it, I read it and I think this isn't enough. You, you, you can't, you can't learn this from reading it in a book. I mean, some people can, like you would say that the 10% read this, I got this, this is so in tune with who I am and how I think I just need the framework. I've got this. Mm -hmm. I think the other 90%, they need practice. Uh, Most of those need feedback on the practice. And if you fail in the first three conversations, you might never pick it up again. Yeah. Right. So you need somebody behind you saying, no, come on, just tweak this. You can do this. Let's go again. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's like trying to learn martial arts from a book. It's not going to happen without practice. Right. So you, you have to practice it. So that means you have to have a bunch of leads so that you can practice it. I've never, have you ever found a good way to role play it? The value conversation? Yeah. Like a really, truly effective way. Yeah. Cool. That's yeah. We, we do that in our training and I, I've, I'm not even going to give it away. I think it's, I feel like I split the atom on this. Like yeah. That, I, the, I can't figure it out. The point of, um, uh, the point that it rec- represents a fundamental shift in your thinking where you really become client focused and, and value focus on value creation. It, people listening to this who haven't mastered the value conversation, they think, well, no, I'm, I'm client focused. I'm focused on value creation and you're not, if you're selling time where you're selling products, you're, you're absolutely are not. And people go, yeah, maybe, but you know, I'm pretty, we pride ourselves here on being, and I, I have a role play of the value conversation where I prove to people and I'm not even going to say what it is because it's one of my most valuable trade secrets, but they do this <laughs> exercise at the end of it. They, 
I give them the framework at a very high level without much detail. And I say, we partner them up, go have value conversation on this topic. And it's the topics that's key. Mm -hmm. And obviously you don't, you don't give them enough time and you don't give them enough information. Then you come back and it's like, what do you learn? And most of them don't realize what they've learned until I point it out. And it's like, and, and what I point out is you it was all about you. It was yeah. all about you. And if you did it right, it wasn't about you at all. Like I, yeah. I, I like to say, and I talk about this in the book, I think um, your subject matter expertise is what gets you to the table. It gets you to the value conversation, but then you need to let go of it. You need to let go of what got you there, your subject matter expertise, your, abil your ability to spot the patterns and jump ahead. Let go of that and then embrace the process, the framework, and adopt the Zen mind of the beginner. I am a blank slate. I know nothing. All I have is this framework. There's nothing I have to sell. I always say I can make you a better salesperson if I took everything away, everything that you currently sell away from you. So I'll give you a hint put them in a value conversation role play exercise where they're not selling what it is that they sell. Take their subject matter expertise away from them. Yeah. And then all they have left is the framework. All of a sudden they focus <laughs> on the framework and the client and they have this really meaningful conversation. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing. That's all you got. And so some people worry, it's like, ah, I've hired this new salesperson. They don't have enough subject matter expertise. I go, great. I think if you gave me like a deep subject matter expert versus somebody who has no subject matter expertise, that person with no subject matter expertise will do better, faster, at, more, more initially at the value conversation because the subject matter expertise isn't getting in the way. Mm -hmm. They're not jumping ahead to solutions because they don't know what the solutions are. Yeah. All they have is the framework and they're focused on the client. Yeah. I took, okay. So I, I, 100% agree with all that for sure. So, but this, you know, we're not here to, we're more here to kind of explore how productized services fit into this. And if I could make an observation, tell me if you think this is true. I think the fact that you serve like cutting edge creative firms, it would be crazy. They're basically, they're basically perverting their DNA to productize. Yes. But if you were talking to, if you were, if you were serving, um, I don't know, well, who, you tell me, what would be an example of someone who does make sense to productize like data scientists well, or some mathematicians or, uh, or more or something more like, um, audio so engineers, website design firms have to have a productized service for the follow on the maintenance and it might include hosting maintenance contracts, et cetera. That's, mm -hmm. they don't have to, um, but that's a logical one. So you see a lot of web design, design dev firms who have this like trailing yeah, product, support, yeah. tra trailing product after the customized service. And after some time, some like some of those, some of the revenue becomes easy revenue. You add some volume to that. That's fairly, can be fairly substantial. So that's kind of a natural one, but beyond that, so if you, so a highly creative firm, so take, um, Wyden and Kennedy. So the highly vaunted, um, the, I think they're the world's largest independent ad agency. I just seen it highly, highly creative. The idea that they would productize would be absurd. Creativity mm -hmm. is the ability to see, to bring novel perspective to a problem, to think differently mm -hmm. about the problem. So it wouldn't make sense. But At if I'm end, like an exterminator like a pest control. Yeah. And if, if you're an exterminator, your business is built for scale. At some point, it's like the e-myth. At some point, you're going to hire other exterminators and train them how to exterminate. I suppose. I'm thinking right. of the Bugs Burger example of like the, the guarantee. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but. Bob's Burger? But Bugs, uh, what's it called? But I think it's called Bugs Burger bug extermination oh we got to we'll talk about it offline but okay. they, they have such an absurdly uh their guarantee is so absurdly client friendly that they charge like 5x what you would normally charge and they didn't scale by hiring employees i mean eventually they got bought by somebody that franchised them but um but anyway different conversation for a different day i'm what i'm what i'm asking is 
do you think that there is a is a vertical that where productizing makes more sense than like maybe ad agencies are just the worst possible kind of client or kind of business to try and productize because it it's it doesn't make sense yeah maybe seo ppc search engine optimization pay-per-click like uh, uh advertising um those businesses might be more inclined to productization in in my world and you know there then there are sometimes the, the just standard rote services that are just so commoditize so should you productize no you should get in a different line of work i think yeah that's that is the other option yeah, yeah. If it's if it's commoditized mm. well i i think one thing we've uncovered at least i've uncovered is that i i didn't i wouldn't have been able to articulate this before but i now realize that i see productized serv- services as a transition it's a transition from something to something else um I mean, I've certainly, you know, when I was when I was doing consulting, still mobile consulting, my main income for years and years and years was what I would consider to be a productized service, which was like a monthly advisory retainer, and it was, it was like a scope and it was a price, and I didn't value price it. I just said it's ten thousand, it's fifteen thousand, it's nine thousand, whatever it was for the situation, and. Uh, and I did great, but it was, but it was for a variety of reasons, I got sick of it. But if I had to scale that, if I had to scale it, I don't know how I would have because I could only handle my capacity was roughly three advisory retainer, you know, clients. It wasn't, it, I did fine. I did well, but I wasn't like a millionaire. I wasn't making millions of bucks a year from it and I couldn't have. So I would have had to go somewhere and I'm, I surely was leaving money on the table for sure. It was so easy. People just come to my site. They send me an email. They said, yeah, we want to do it. And we would just do it. <laughs> it was like no sales at all. Because now this is before, when I was doing that, this is before I understood a thing about positioning or marketing or or growing the business. I was just copying stuff that I, I was copying stuff that I knew the name of, but I didn't understand. And uh, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how I would have scaled that beyond where I was. I was super comfortable, but I don't know how to scale something like that. So I see it as a transition from, even if you're doing great, it's a transition either into probably value pricing for creative work. And I don't just mean designers or whatever, or going mass market and having true products, you know, where you're selling books and courses and uh, membership communities and those sorts of things. Yeah. I, I see your point of view. Uh, I suspect there are better interim steps. I just think the traps, like I think if you really, I, I see productized services, like they're, it, like there's this spectrum, fully customized, fully productized, two different businesses. And then in the middle is where I was as a consultant. It was mm-hmm. like, okay, you got a problem. Yeah, I can, I'll sell you. So somebody would say, as a business development consultant, somebody would say, okay, well, these are my challenges. And I would say, well, these are the three products I can sell you at these prices. And I was like, uh, but are we gonna, are we gonna get to the heart of, yeah, probably with this one. Okay, I'll buy that one. And my entire business was built on, okay, I'll buy that one, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. Kind and then no I, man's land. I was at this inflection point when I started to learn about value-based pricing. I realized, you know, I'm stuck in the mushy middle here. I if I want to be a good consultant, I need to, I need to value price. I need to slow down. I need to have these conversations. I need to figure out what it is, you know, the, that the client really wants and how much value can really be created here. And then I need to structure a more open and engagement and the biggest, or I need to productize. And I chose productization and scale largely, I guess two reasons. Number one, I was kind of a little bit bored as being a consultant. Um, but number two, which was maybe the larger reason, I live in a remote mountain village in the middle of nowhere. I, I really believe that for me to do consulting properly, I had to be able to say to my client, listen, I'll be there Monday morning. And where mm-hmm. I live, I can't, uh, you know, that's just not a thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'll spend two days trying to get to where I'm going and then two days coming back. Right. So I didn't feel like my location allowed me to do that. Now, the truth is like, 
I could have stayed with the model that I had and just kept raising my prices. And like my friend, but I was, I was topping out at what I, I would look at other independent consultants and I would think, well, nobody can make more than this. My prices are high. I'm working as hard as I can. I'm getting sick three, four times a year traveling the world. <laughs> um, this is as high as it goes. And now I look at it and people are doing three, four times what I was doing. And obviously there are people out there doing multiples of that probably. Um, but yeah. So my, my friend who's going to do a million and a half this year, he lives in a, he lives in a location where it's like, it's so easy to travel. And then COVID hits. And what happens is like, now he doesn't have to travel at all. So now he goes from a million to a million and a half. Right. And his costs go to zero. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's, I was trapped in the mushy middle and I see these having some productized services with the exception of the ones that we agreed on. Yep. I see it as a being in the mushy middle like as a, a tra transition, maybe. And I hadn't thought about it as a transition. I recognize that you're that audience of your listeners here who are soloists. It is different. It is different. Um, it's just you. And if you can't master the skill, maybe you have to go down market and productize, but you have the volume have to, has to come from somewhere. Yep. You still need the, I, you need volume at both ends. You're just going to say no to fewer people at the high end. I mean, you're yeah. going to say no, you're going to say yes to fewer people at the high end. So did we make any progress? I, I did. Thank you for that. So I, I, I now realize that I see it as a transition step. I did not think of that before. And, and I wonder if people who have resisted it as an idea thought that I was saying, this is going to be your new business forever and ever. Amen. Because now, and now if I, if I, frame it as a transition either the few things that we've carved out as essentially um gateway drugs into uh a, a basically a, a value price project or they're gonna you know other than those if you're gonna do something else it's probably just you transitioning you're trying to get your time back so that you can build products at the other end of the spectrum now with software developers there are actual products right like you Sure. You build a product for a client and you look at, look around and go, wow, there are hundreds of clients like you, thousands. I could resell this. So yeah, I've seen cult consulting firms, customized services firms build products. A great example is a friend of mine owns a business. Traction on demand is the URL. It's a salesforce.com consulting cloud computing consulting, primarily Salesforce, mm -hmm. they have developed many products. And if you look at their, go to their website, you can see all of these products that they've developed, <clears throat> but they've handled this properly. They've, they develop a product, they spin it off into its own business. And they've done this with four five, six products. Mm -hmm. um, it's a large business to begin with. Um, but that's the way to do it. And at that size, you have to spin them off because the cultures clash. The culture of a yeah. product company is clashes with the more innovative, more creative culture right. of a consulting company. Right, because one side wants to get efficient and cut costs, and the other side wants the yeah. exact opposite. It's scale, higher scale, lower margins, efficiencies become more important, systems become more important, mm. managers become more important, et cetera. Yeah, and that's another difference between our audiences is like most of my people have an engineering mindset, so they love the idea of creating efficiency. Yeah, Yep. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So the, to, so then to be in your, okay, but in your business, you're going to be totally creative and you're going to be an artist and you're going to have this performance art conversation, the sales call. You can't, like, you reside on this spectrum of efficiency on one end and innovation on the other. Yeah. And you, you want to embrace. So yeah, I guess from that point of view, it is a, it is a tendency of an engineer to want to systematize and productize. Yeah. They love it but to make it work. You need scale. Yeah, but if you're solo, you don't need that much scale to get over the hump to swallow the fish. And then you're like, wow, I'm only working like like 10 hours a week. So with that extra 30 hours, what can I do? And I'm create, just, create more products. I'm just <laughs> smiling at the 10 hours a week. You and I have had probably had goals of that too. And Oh, dude, when I was... I, so I, laughable. No, not, not for me. Nope. No, my average this year is seven hours a week. Oh, I've never hated you more than I hate you right now, Jonathan yeah. Stark. I don't want to make more money. I want to work fewer hours. Next year, I'm okay, shooting this podcast for four. is over. <laughs> <laughs>
Even Tim Ferriss never made it to four. Yeah. Well, I, I'm cheating because they're like, I don't count this as work. Talking to you is not work. I don't count that. So I do a bunch of things like this that people would count as work. I have like four or five podcasts and I write a mailing list every day. But to me, that's pure pleasure. And if I was retired, I'd be writing every day anyway. So so I am cheating in the sense that I don't count things that make that benefit my business as work necessarily. It's just the the one on one phone calls. That's work. Um, but that's about it. OK, thanks for that. I work 90 minutes a week and I have to go into my 90 minute staff meeting right now to do my <laughs> my 90 minutes of work all right well i will let you go in that case but always a pleasure thanks for joining me again uh, blair where can people go to find out more well i really enjoyed this conversation as i enjoy all of our conversations jonathan thank you so it's lots for me to think about too um winwithoutpitching.com awesome go there good stuff all right folks that's it for this week i'm jonathan stark and i hope you join me again next time on ditching hourly see you then Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time, or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space, or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one -on -one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call, you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one -on -one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com slash call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.